Heavenly Father, we know this world has nothing for us. Lord, we come today seeking your guidance, seeking your wisdom, listening to your word with all of our hearts, all of our minds, all of our spirit, all of our strength focused upon you, Lord. Let the words spoken through Matthew today be your words that we would leave here changed, eternally changed, growing in our faith, growing in our love, knowing that you have a command for us, knowing, knowing you have a mission for us to go out and serve you by serving each other and loving one another as you command in your word. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen, amen. Good morning again. So glad you're here in this third service at Rock Point. Actually, it's our fourth service, if you count our Saturday night service. And uh, glad to see you. This morning, there's a, a challenging message to be heard. I appreciate the prayer uh, that Ron led us in to get us to the place of thinking that we need more of God this morning than ever before in our life. If you brought the Word of God this morning, I challenge you to, uh, or invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, also, the uh, scripture will be on the screen as well if you didn't happen to bring it. I want to ask you to think about something this morning that's kind of odd at church, but can you remember the last time that you were the most scared in your life? Perhaps a scary moment, something that kind of set you back and rattled you, something that really brought perhaps fear to the depths of your heart. Just take a second and think about that. The last time that you were perhaps the most scared in your life. For me, I, I have to admit, there's a couple of times in my life, and one I, I admit was kind of silly. I was with my son, John, several years ago in a Nashville water park. And uh, as you can tell, I'm not a small man. I am not a light, young whippersnapper like I used to be. And my son saw the, the ultimate water coaster that you have a two-man raft, and you go through these, this kind of the tube of death, really. And he said, Daddy, please, can we do this? He was, he was bigger than his age and taller than he was supposed to be, and I was hoping the age limit would catch it, but because he was like the 99th percentile, he was plenty long and tall to ride this ride. But at the depth of my heart, I was really scared. Because what he didn't know, that I know, is after you reach a little 200 plus pounds, you tend to let your weight plus the friction of water go really fast. And what I didn't want the little boy to do is not to be able to hold on and for my son to fall off or throw off the ride. I was scared for his safety knowing that once we get on this ride, there's no turning back. And so we stand in line. And I remember just standing, waiting in a line and hoping that he would like, I'm getting scared, Daddy. How are you, son? Do you want to turn back? You don't have to go. It's okay. And the whole time I was like, let's charge. Let's do this thing. And I kept thinking, I'm going to die right here in Nashville. I was going to. Well, the, the ride, we got on the ride, actually, and I asked the man, is this going to be okay? He said, you're fine, just hang on. He said, but you are a little, you know, a little hefty for this thing. So he said, hang on extra tight. And I don't think John ever caught that. And all I thought was when he pushed us off, this was the end. <laughs> Death by water park. I just knew that we were going to set some kind of land speed record on this tube. And actually, to be honest with you, we really did. At the end of the tube is this kind of half pipe. And most people, even two big teenage guys, use it on the half pipe. They only go about halfway up the half pipe, and they kind of go back down and slide down the middle. My son and I, we charged out of that tube so fast and hit the tube. We went up to the very top edge. We could see all of Nashville. But we're holding on to this little tube, this little raft, and he's like, "Wee! This is the greatest experience he's ever had in his life. And my most terrified moment, I can imagine, as a father. 
We survived. But I remember having that deep fear in my heart. Well, another one's a little more serious. I remember taking a team of college students on a mission trip to Venezuela. And as we were flying back home to the United States and Venezuela, we were sitting in a smaller plane. It's not a, you know, one of those big seater planes, maybe 50 people or less. And we heard the cockpit eh, 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 pull up, pull up. And we're thinking, okay, this is kind of unique. We never hear the cockpit respond, and we're kind of close enough that we can hear it. And then all of a sudden we hit some crazy turbulence. I mean, some massive turbulence, and the sirens of the cockpit are going off. I remember saying to myself, and I'm trying to say, Matthew, don't freak out. The college students are watching you, okay? You're their leader. If they're going to freak out, they want to know, hey, is it cool? Are we good? And I'm thinking, this is, is going to be just fine. And I remember on the inside thinking, I have no control. I am helpless. If we were to crash and die today in, this, in the ocean or hit a mountain or whatever, that'd be it. And, and the scariest thing that came to my mind was, I am absolutely, I have no way to control the situation. And it reminded me, isn't that when you and I experience the most fear in our life? When we get to the place that we have absolute no control, we've lost the complete right to control the situation. And ultimately, when we feel that, compared to something that's going perhaps disaster in our life, we sense a deadening amount of fear in our life, great fear. It could be in a car crash, perhaps you've experienced that. Maybe it's the news of cancer. Maybe it's the news of losing someone that you love. A lot of us in this room have journeyed the journey of fear at some point in our life. And this morning, kind of as a step two to last week's sermon from Ron about the crises and the presence of God in the storm, we sense that here that God is teaching us. In 2012, there's a very clear formula, a very clear reality when the bottom falls out. If you remember last week, I want to just turn our attention to the very last verse of chapter 4 in Mark last week. The very last verse, as the disciples who kind of uh, come through the storm, here is Peter writing this through his uh, amanuensis, John Mark, and verse 41 in chapter 4, look what the, the last words of the, of the storm passage that Ron led last week. He says, And they became very much afraid, and they said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea would obey Him, God, this Jesus incarnate, I think it's amazing because their fear left 180 degrees from the peril of dying in the storm to fear of who is this God that's in the boat with us. Now right on the hills of this statement, right on the hills of this experience, having spent this uh, turbulent time in the storm and Christ showing up and healing or calming the storm, they end up on the other side, the Gentile section of the lake of the Sea of Galilee. And to an area the disciples... I'm assuming have never been before. The Sea of Galilee is actually very large. It's, it's more like a, a small sea than it is really a lake. It's, it's massive. You can see all the way across it on a very, very clear day, but just barely. And the reality is here's Jesus having sent the disciples to an unknown area. And we're about to see what the Lord does in a powerful way. If you have the Word of God, let's read together. Chapter 5, here are 20 verses. I'm reading from the New American Standard. It'll be up on the screen for you as well. The Bible says, now they came to the other side of the sea, that is the lake, in the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus got out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling, this man who was tormented, had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with chains. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles even broken into pieces, so that no one was strong enough to subdue him. 
And constantly, night and day, he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains, and he was gashing himself with stones. Now seeing Jesus from a distance, the man ran up, and he bowed down before Jesus. And shouting with a loud voice, he said, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg of you by God, do not torment me. The man said this, for Christ Jesus had been saying to the man, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he's asking him, What is your name? And he, the man, or perhaps the demon inside the man said, My name is Legion, for we are many. And the demon began to implore Jesus earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now there was a large herd of swine feeding nearby on the mountain. And the demons begged Jesus, saying, Send us into the swine so that we can enter them. And then Jesus gave permission. And coming out of the man, the unclean spirits entered into the pigs, the swine. And then the herd rushed down this deep, steep bank into the sea. There were about 2,000 swine, and they were all drowned. Their herdsmen then ran away and reported in the city nearby in the country of what had happened. And the people then came to see what had happened. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed, and he was sitting down, he was clothed, and he was in his right mind. The very man who had the legion, and they, the crowd, became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how this happened, and how the two, the demon-possessed man, and all the things that happened with the pigs and the swine. And they began to beg of Jesus to leave the region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed was begging Jesus that he might come along with Christ and the disciples and accompany them. But Jesus did not let him, but he said, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how God has had mercy on you. And verse 20 says, The man went away and he began to proclaim in Decapolis the great things that Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. Contrary to, to, to many people who preach this text consistently as they do exegesis through the New Testament, this story is really not about demonology. This story is really not at the heart about exorcisms or, or a handbook on spiritual warfare. As we read the story, here is Mark writing Peter's firsthand eyewitness experience about Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who is both God and our hope. He is both God and our power. He's our God of power. Jesus Christ, who is the one who has power to subsume and oversee any situation. So rather than reading this more as a, a scary, different plot, we need to approach this text today and figure out what, what is happening in the lives of these who the story is about. We notice the players here. There's Jesus Christ. We notice the players here. There are those in the crowd that are watching. We notice the man who's actually been tormented. And then we have the disciples. So we have four players kind of interacting in the story, all trying to interact and respond to who is this man, Jesus Christ. So consider with me, first of all, the tormented man. Can you imagine his situation? Can you imagine what has happened to him? He's been tormented every single day of his life, at least for the point of coming to the tombs. He's been isolated. He's been abandoned. He lives in tombs. He's been chained to the, to the cemetery, if you will. He's been left to rot and die because no one can control him. 
Can you think about what's taking place in this man's life? Think about what Satan has stole from this man. Satan has stole everything from him. He's stolen his family. Satan has stolen his dignity, his reputation, his health. Satan's even stolen a future from this man. Now, all of us think about crises in life. I, I kind of label them this way. There are, are those of us who have struggles and discouragement. And each of us, all in this room, have faced at different times struggles and discouragement. There are those of us then sometimes, in a more deeper way, we experience a, a true loss. What we call crises. And I think Ron, again, last week, preached about what happens in the storm, the crises that we go through. And there's storms in life. And I would consider more than just a struggle or a discouragement, there are crises. But I think there's a third level as well. The bottom level. The level that would be described as desperation. Total loss. When the bottom of your world completely falls out from under you and you have nowhere to stand, so to speak. I don't know that many of us in this room have been to that place yet. Maybe you have. Maybe you could stand on the stage and give a testimony of where you were. I think about a time a few years ago when I was walking in India. And in India, as people get older, and perhaps they're, they're disabilitated for some reason or whatever, family members will take them and, and just put them on the sidewalk in a different city and leave them there to die. Do you guys remember Mother Teresa in Calcutta? Her only task, her ministry was to find the unloved, the unwanted, so they could come and die in dignity. Unfortunately, things have not changed much. Though in Calcutta, there's a, a really beautiful ministry there. In the south of India, as I was walking down the street, we saw many of these. The unmentionable, the forgotten, the unloved. Left to die without food or water, without shelter, without anybody. And the worst part of all is that these people were placed there by their own family, completely abandoned. I can't imagine what it would be like to be on the sidewalk in India, having no one to care for me, having become basically a part of the scenery of the world around me, that I no longer exist, I'm no longer seemingly valuable. Can you consider the same idea with this man? The same thing's happening here. He's been left alone. He's tormented. Satan, John 10.10 says, Satan's job is to steal, kill, and destroy. Yet Jesus Christ says, I have come to give life and life abundant. This man is not just simply having a crisis or, or just going through a simple struggle. This man has lost everything. And I wonder if he thought he was beyond hope. If he was beyond reach. He's a Gentile. He's in a Gentile world. Has anyone come to rescue him to this point? No. And I wonder if we can identify. It's interesting that a few years ago in the, the Valley of Tennessee, the TVA, uh, TVA authority, which is the Tennessee Valley Authority, was going to flood out a dam. Going to flood a whole section of a, of, a, of a lower valley of the city. And so for six months, the, the residents were trying to prepare to leave, knowing that at the end of the six months, their whole valley, their homes, everything was going to be flooded. This could become a new lake for hydropower. This is the late 1930s. And it was interesting because sociology was becoming popular at this point, and so they were doing studies about the people who were having to be forced from their homes. And just within a very few weeks, they realized that the, the families had given up taking care of anything. They left the property. There was no more painting. There was no more mowing the lawn. There was no more washing windows. They weren't doing the laundry. These people, in a state of discouragement and overwhelm, had just pretty much let everything go to pot. Weeks even before the flooding was about to take place. It was interesting, was because at the end of the season, at six months, that valley did not get flooded. 
For whatever reason, CVA decided to flood another valley and not theirs. And so here's what a researcher had written. He says, it's interesting because where there is no hope for the future, there is no power in the present. Now, this is not a Christian man. This is not someone who's writing about a spiritual principle here. He's just simply saying, he is observing sociologically where there is no hope for a future. There's no power in the present. This kind of empties itself. It kind of voids itself and saying, what's the point? I don't know that if you're going to go through a trial at some point in your life when you say, I have lost complete control. This is not a struggle. This is not a crisis. I'm at the bottom. I'm at the very, very lowest part of my life. I'm desperate for something. And unless someone or something intervenes in my situation, there seemingly is no hope for my life. Now, my prayer for you is that you don't have to taste that. My prayer for you is that, that you would not have to taste that struggle in your life. But if you do, isn't it phenomenal that, that Peter, disciple of Jesus Christ, writing to his, his buddy John Mark, and they record what takes place in these 20 verses about the nature of Jesus Christ. Because we see a man that is tormented daily, who has no family, been abandoned, completely isolated, and he's tasting every day of his life desperation. But is the God we serve, is the God we serve to say that it's too much for God? There's someone who's too far out of reach for God. There's someone who's too far gone for God. Is there a situation anywhere that you can imagine that God cannot work in it? And Peter, who just come off the boat in the storm. Peter, who's just walked on water. Peter, who's just sensed and experienced this incredible moment where God has rescued him and encouraged him. Now across the lake, he's right. He says, and by the way, nothing is impossible with God. Look at it from Jesus' perspective. The Bible says in verse 7 and 8, Jesus started saying to the man, Come out of the man, you clean spirit. Here's Jesus entering into a difficult situation. Now, his power is powerful because it's in perfect knowledge that Jesus knew this man's situation. This didn't happen happenstance. Jesus didn't kind of happen upon this situation. It's like, huh, what's going to happen here? Here is Jesus, God and man, perfectly functioning on this earth to demonstrate to you and I the perfection of God's nature. And what's beautiful about this passage is, as we learn what Jesus does, we learn about the very nature and the heart of God. We learn about the very nature and the heart of humanity. So as we, as we kind of dive through this, we sense, what is God doing? What is God's heart? How do we respond? And how do we as humanity, how do we respond when God shows up? It's interesting to see the dichotomy of God's heart and His nature. So in perfect knowledge, Jesus knew the location and the situation of this man. And he, he walked right in the scene. But listen, in perfect love, Jesus Christ did not veer around or redirect his path. He didn't divert himself. He went right to the heart of this man's need. He spoke right to the need. Come out of this man, unclean spirit. Think about Jesus. He's going to a Gentile area though his ministry was called to the Jews. Number two, he's in an unclean, ritually area. He's in the tombs. And as such, he was defiling his own religion, his own, so to speak, religious nature of being a Jew, because you can't be in a Gentile area, by the way, where there's swine and pigs everywhere. Hello, the most unclean of unclean animals. But here is Jesus not only being around a man and touching him, he's inside a cemetery, which means at least for seven days, he's ritually unclean. 
And so most Jews, had they happened upon this, they would have run away. They would have gone extreme, got back in the boat and paddled to the other side. But the reality is they wouldn't have stayed and had any interaction in a cemetery around tombs with an unclean man, with an unclean spirit in swine country. And yet Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, came out of the boat knowing where he was going, to whom he was going to minister. And he got eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose the man, and he dealt with the man's biggest need. He didn't just clothe the man. He didn't just give him some posh psychotheology or some, some psychiatry to say, you know what, just feel better about yourself. Just kind of pull yourself by the bootstraps and do better. Just, just kind of think better thoughts. You know what, if you just didn't scream so much, hey, how about some toothbrush, right? Here's some toothpaste. Just do some more oral hygiene and people will come around. Listen, he dealt with the heart of the matter. Because when you're desperate, you don't need trite sayings, cliches. You don't need pop psychology. You need God to show up in the midst of your need and reach down out of heaven and speak life and truth and health into the deepest part of your life. And Jesus knew the issue. He said, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Here's Jesus Christ not diverting because God was showing perfect knowledge and perfect love. In perfect power, Jesus Christ changed these lives in the middle of the chaos. In the middle of the chaos, Jesus Christ is changing lives. This man's life was forever changed because God has the power. God who speaks hope and breathes hope in the presence, He has hope, but He gives power to this man who could do nothing other than receive God's grace and be healed. It's it's powerful. It's powerful because... Not only was this man's life changed, think about the crowd around him. Think about the disciples. Think about those that were witnessing God at work. See, I think God's heart is always intentioned. I think the nature of God is such that when He acts, He wants people to notice. I think God is demonstrating all through the Old and New Testament that God is a God who's not embarrassed to show His nature and His grace and His power to bring hope where there's no hope and to bring life where there's desperation and death. The God that we serve, the God that we worship this morning is a God that is alive and well that can change the most dire of situations because God is our only hope. He is, at the end of the day, our only hope. Why should we not start first with Him? Why should we not cry out and beg of God to show up in the moment we need Him the most? So in hope, Jesus, He came to rescue this man. Intentionally, He came to rescue this man. To change His life. Intentionally, He came to demonstrate that Jesus Christ and God have ultimate power over natural forces and supernatural forces. That pretty much sums up the universe over the natural forces and the supernatural forces. Jesus didn't get scared, didn't run away. He dealt with the issue in the supernatural realm and he took care of the man's greatest need. The God that we serve, the God of hope, the God of power is a God who supersedes the natural and the supernatural world. There's nothing too hard for God. I think in the scripture we see here that he came to rescue. He came to demonstrate the power of God. And third, he came to release the glory of God in the lives that were changed. Isn't it powerful to see this man who came back to Jesus and said, Hey, 
Can I follow you? The, the crowd was freaked out. They saw the naked, crazy, screaming man who's got cuts and bruises and stones and who can't be shackled. He's out of his mind and he's, 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 he's a crazy loon and, and we can't be around this guy. He's lost it. Desperation 101. And now they come upon this man. They see that he's clothed and he's in his right mind. He's able to have a conversation. Can you imagine him going back to his family and them who knew him the most would see a 180 degree change in his life? What happened to you? I met Jesus Christ. He wasn't afraid to come to the tombs. He wasn't afraid to get out of the boat. He wasn't afraid to touch me, to get eyeball to eyeball. And he dealt with my greatest need. When no one else would be there, when all hope had been abandoned, when I was isolated and left to rot and die, God showed up. And God was not afraid. And God was not intimidated to speak life into this man's life and heart. Christ came to save and rescue the man. Christ came to demonstrate the power of God over natural and supernatural. But, but God came to, Jesus Christ came to unleash the glory of God in this man's life. Isn't that what we need more of in our church? Isn't that what we need more of in our, our community at Flower Mound? People who deeply tasted God's grace, such that they are changed. They cannot do life the same. They can't go to school. They can't go to the bank. and They don't go to Walmart. They don't see the world the same because they've walked so deeply in the valley and they've seen how deep God had to reach to pull them out and love them and cleanse them and forgive them and bring life into life. That life just tastes different. At some level, have you experienced that? At some level, have you sensed the fact that Christ has saved you and redeemed you and cleansed you and loved you and shown you hope and power so He can release, release the worship that's due God? He can release the worship that God alone is worthy to receive. It's powerful because verse 19, Christ said to him, Go home to your people and report to them the great things the Lord has done for you. How God has had mercy on you. And the man, verse 20, says he went away and he began to proclaim. That's, that's the Greek word which means I just can't keep it inside. It's going to burst out of me. I've got to share it. I've got to preach it. I've got to exclaim it. I've got to proclaim to the world. Christ has changed my life. God showed up. And everything is different. For this man, I think it's powerful to see what the Lord would unleash in his life to bring in the deepest places where Christ did no longer go. He got back in his boat and he left. But he sent this man to demonstrate a life changed. Lastly, think about the people, the crowd. How do they respond to this miracle? How did the, how did the Gentiles respond necessarily to the work of God in their midst. And I think it's, it's pretty powerful because they, they tell Jesus, you know what? They're scared. They don't understand this. They see that the swine, the 2,000, perhaps a big part of their economy, now has collapsed. And, and it's because of one man. And they ask Jesus to leave the region. It's powerful to think that these people cared more about their religious experience and their religious understanding more so than God's presence. Did you sense that? 
The people in, in the store here, the crowd, could not understand what took place. Maybe they thought he was a demon because whoever can control a demon can control other demons. Maybe he's a head demon. So we don't get it. So listen, we need you to go ahead and leave. Because we, if we don't understand, if we can't control our religious experience, maybe that's more important than God's personal presence. May we never be a church that clings too much to religion such that we lose the desire for the presence of the living God amongst us. Second, the Bible says that the people were upset about what they, what he had done with the, the pigs and the swine. And so it says that they cared more about their livelihood and their jobs, the economy, than God's very power. Trusting in their economy, trusting in their ability versus the God who gives them all things in His power. And lastly, people cared more about maintaining the status quo or normalcy than they did about this man's changed life. I pray that we would be a church that has eyes so sensitive to the Holy Spirit that we're willing to get out of our comfort zone to minister to those in need and rejoice with those who Christ has changed their life, even if it's messy, even if it's dirty. I love the ministry uh, to South Dallas. I think it was last Sunday or two Sundays ago. We had a chance on the fifth Sunday of the month to go and do ministry where it's just not easy. Do ministry where folks don't always look like us or dress like us or talk like us or have the same socioeconomic status as us. But yet God has called us to go to all places, to all peoples, starting in our city first, and to love well in the name of Jesus Christ. I love the fact that God has allowed us to keep this story, to know the truth about what God would do to unleash His glory and power for His name's sake. You know, it's interesting because if I brought a basketball up here right now and I held a basketball, that basketball would not be worth very much. But if I put a basketball in the hands of LeBron James and set him loose, that's a million-dollar event. If you gave me a baseball today, it's interesting. I can hold that baseball, and you're like, you know what? This is a $20 baseball, a big deal. But if I put that baseball in you, Darvish's hands, and let him at it, that becomes a million-dollar event. If you give me a cello, I don't know why you would do that, but if you did, you gave me a cello, right? And you let me hold it, and I started to play the thing, you're like, we're out of here, because you get the boat and leave, right? One of those experiences, right? And listen, it's not a big deal, but you put that cello in Yo-Yo Ma's hands, it becomes a million-dollar event, because it's not about the circumstance or what's taking place is about whose hands, in whose hands you put it, that makes it valuable. When you and I are tasting the experience of life, we've got to know to whom we turn and whose hands we give our needs, our greatest hurts, our greatest pains. The Lord is saying, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Put it in my hands. You take your crisis. You take your struggle, you take your desperation, and you put that in the hands of the one God who is a God of hope and power. And it's more than a million dollar event. It's an eternal event. I closed the story. Uh, Ephesians 1 talks about unleash the power of God. And here's, here's Paul praying that the people of Ephesus would understand the hope and the knowledge and the unsurpassing power of the glory of Christ, the same power that raised Him from the dead. He says, your hope is connected to the power. Your hope is connected to the power of God. If we trust alone and faithfully, intentionally, in the person of Jesus Christ as God, we should have big hope 
irrespective of our circumstances. A few years ago, uh, George Bush Sr., our president, uh, went to Russia to bury Leonid Brezhnev. And Leonid Brezhnev had led the Communist Party for years and out of respect for his death, America sent our president to go. And the president, I'm sorry, he was vice president at the time. He's George, he's George, uh, George Bush Sr. He's vice president. We sent our emissary because Ronald Reagan couldn't go. And so at the funeral, George Bush makes this remark. Perhaps the most daring and courageous act in the middle of the, the capital, right? The citadel of atheistic, secular, humanistic Russia. The very widow of Leonid Brezhnev stood by the casket, waiting to the very last second before the very lid closed, and they buried his body in front of the world, in front of the Russian national state, in front of all the dignitaries of, of Russia. The lady, right before, the very second before the, the lid was closed, she stepped in, put her hand on the man's chest, her husband, and she made the form of a cross. In the very act of putting a cross on that man's chest, her husband, she was defying everything Russia stood for. She was defying everything that the national communistic Russian party had held. And she was standing perhaps in the most, the most civil disobedient act she could muster. She was stating, I hope that my husband was wrong. I hope that Russia is wrong. I'm putting my hope in the fact that the cross represents resurrection, which represents a true God. In the middle of my communist world, there has to be something more than just this life has to offer. In your life, the cross is real. The cross proclaims hope. And the hope exists in your situation, in your life, in your ministries. Because Jesus Christ demonstrated the power of God to conquer all things. Matthew eighteen nineteen. For nothing is impossible with God. Would you pray with me this morning? With every head bowed and every eye I close, I just would ask you to think this morning about your life. We talked about scary moments at the beginning of the service. And perhaps you could resonate with a time in your life when you sense that you had lost complete control. I don't know what the Lord would prepare you for this morning and why God brought you here, but I believe this. As we think about the heart of God, the nature of God, who's a merciful God to save, there are those of you in this room who are about to go through some ugly storms and trials. I wish you didn't have to experience that in a corrupt and broken world. But this church stands on the Word of God that proclaims the glory of a powerful and God of hope. And this morning, I just would ask that you would double down and and prepare your heart to know that no matter what may come in the days to come, you are not alone. You are not abandoned. You will not be isolated. And if the world that you know falls out from under your feet, Jesus Christ, our God, is there who knows your situation. He knows where you live. And He's unafraid to rescue you in the middle of your life. 
It may not come in your timing. It may not look how you think it should look. But God has not forsaken you. There are those in this room that have come out of that storm and God is preparing you now to minister to those in this church and in our community who need a word of hope. Father God, our prayer this morning is that, Lord, we would be unabashed and unafraid to go to the hard places, Lord, to say the hard things, to love people that are unlovable and, God, in the worst situations that we can imagine. God, help us through the power of your Holy Spirit to speak grace in life and truth and your presence there. Father, our prayer is that you would move among us this morning, that you would change our lives, that, Father, we would unleash your glory to all this week who would come into contact with us.